Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Mental Corner Podcast, the show where I bring on guests from all different backgrounds to talk all the things mental health. I'm your host, Harry Pavin, and today to wrap up my guests for March, I am joined by Melissa Doman. Melissa is an organizational psychologist and the author of the new book, Yes, You Can Talk About Mental Health at Work, Here's Why. She helps equip people, companies, and leaders constructively talk about mental health and mental illness in the workplace. Now, this conversation is super important as we start to integrate back into the office, into the workplace. So I really want to thank Melissa again again for coming on and having this discussion with me. Now, before we get into the episode today, guys, you know the drill. If you're listening, please like, comment, share, subscribe, give five stars if you're on that podcast platform. Share with someone who might want to hear this episode. It's a really great one, and I can't wait for you to listen. I'll talk to y'all very soon. Have a great rest of your day. Peace. Good to go. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. So have I. And my my biggest question for you probably for the whole episode is like, what got you started in the whole mental health field? You know, it was kind of a series of, um, we'll call them happy accidents, just like uh, Jane Lynch's book. Mm. And uh, so I, for folks who work in tech, I joke that I used to have the back end job and then I went to the front end job. So I was the clinical therapist that people spoke to in private about things that they could never feel like they could talk to their family or coworkers or whatever it was. And all of my patients had one thing in common. They, none of them felt like they could talk about it at work, not a soul. And that didn't sit well with me. And especially because a lot of them came in for a whole variety of, of diagnoses or things going on, but having a toxic workplace didn't exactly help that. So I thought, let me make an impact at the source in the workplace. And a lot of people would end up in therapy for bosses who were bullying them or they were unhappy with work, a whole smorgasbord of reasons. So when I switched into org psych, and I still do a lot of this traditional org psych work now around team dynamics or emotional intelligence or, you know, uh, leadership, uh, power of dynamics, you know, those sorts of things. But you still couldn't say the words mental health or mental illness. I didn't understand why. It's why are these being considered like they're the boogeyman words that need to be avoided. So when my husband and I moved to London, and I was working for a, a contract for a company. And they said, oh, you're clinically trained. Will you do a mental health awareness campaign for us? I was like, oh my God, yes, I'm so excited. <laughs> and then it was, you know, no looking back from there. So it has been an incredible, what is it now? Five years? That sounds right, five years. And it has been an amazing journey because I kind of, and this weird unicorn that kind of sits between the worlds of being a previous clinician who now does work psych work. And really what it is, is people want explicit permission to talk about it and they want to know how to not screw it up. Right. So that's what I've been doing for organizations because honestly, the brain is just an organ. Truly, it's just an organ. But because it's the organ that governs how we think, how we interact with our environment, how we interact with others people treat it as though they can't touch it with a 10 foot pole, but you also need that brain for work. You need yeah. that organ for work. So to not be able to talk about the health state, the stress state or the illness state 
of that organ in relation to work is complete and utter nonsense and not sustainable. So I am deeply appreciative to be able to open up this crucial conversation in businesses. It's not just a wellness thing. It's not just a DEI thing. It's not just an accessibility thing. It is a conversational literacy thing, period. Mm-hmm. And so the, the companies that want to talk about this with me tend to want the, the spoonful of honesty helps the education go down. Right. Right. Yeah. Man, well, it, it, it's just such a strange thing that we're, well, the strange thing being that we're so dismissive of the topic of mental health when mm-hmm. it literally is such an important part of our day-to-day function. Well, there's a lot of historical reason for that. So, you know, I wrote a, a massive chunk in, in my book about how did we get to where we are now? Because historically, I'm talking thousands of years, any form of variation in behavior or something that could be deemed as mental illness has been villainized mm-hmm. pretty intensely. So we're talking about like being possessed by the devil or women having a wandering uterus. And that's why they were seen as hysterical. I'm not making this stuff up. These are what people actually used to believe. And so humans tend to be fearful or hate the other. That is still true. I know you know that. And it's, it's really sad because people tend to be fearful or to stigmatize behavior that they don't understand or they haven't recognized before. And also a lot of this is quite culturally dependent. It can be influenced by religion, by culture of origin, by family of origin, lots of things that influence how we look at this topic. And it's really just a matter of updating what that actually is, because just because we used to believe it doesn't mean we still should. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in the work environment, like based on what you've worked with and everything, what what are the conversations when you first started what were they like between the CEOs and their employees on this topic? Well, I would call it a cautious optimism mm. or maybe I like to call it toe dipping. So, you know, back then, gosh, what was it? 2017, 2018, there was very much a recognition of need that it needed to happen, but it was a bit like Talladega nights with Will Ferrell where they're like, I don't know where to put my hands. Oh yeah, yeah. And you know, you, you just want to let people know it's important. Everyone's figuring it out. You don't need to be an expert overnight, but you do need to start the conversation. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of very like cautious toe dipping. And in the past five years, it has exploded into being so much more than that. But each company is still on their own journey of motivation and willingness and readiness to talk about this topic. I just spoke to someone the other day who's asked me to come speak to 15 CEOs. And they said to me, well, you know, one of the CEOs said, you know, I didn't sign up for this, you know, CEO having to talk about this stuff. Mm. And we just want to warn you that that person might be a little difficult to deal with in your session. And I said, oh, they can think that all they want as long as they're comfortable with their employees quitting. Yeah. You know, that's fine. I, I'm not going to tell that person that they have to care and this is how they have to do it they're going to experience the fact that employees will vote with their feet and Mm. let them learn that lesson because I'm not going to be the one to give it to them. I can let them know it's coming, but they have, it sounds like that person needs to experience what people are going to do in today's market for CEOs or companies that don't care about it. And make no mistake that while the CEO and C-suite and leadership need to role model 
around this conversation. And when you're in those positions of influence and authority, people look to you for permission about what you can and can't talk about. However, everybody who works in a company is a chronologically aged adult. Mm -hmm. So even if a CEO or C-suite or leadership say, it's okay for us to talk about this, here's why, blah, blah, blah. Each person needs to do their part. It can't just be on leadership. They're just people who happen to have those titles. So every single person needs to participate in normalizing this, not just leaders. That is a common misconception that lots of people, the leadership, the leadership, I go, well, yes, but what about everybody else? They have to do it too. There has to be individual, individual accountability for each person. And that doesn't mean every single person needs to talk about it. That would be really uncomfortable and obligatory and ineffective, right. but each person should feel they have the opportunity to, and shouldn't feel scared mm -hmm. option without obligation and option without consequence. Right. Yeah. That's I've heard that so many times, not out like outside of work, just in normal life where it's like, mm -hmm. why don't celebrities talk more about mental health or like the crisis and everything? I was like, why don't you talk about it more? I haven't heard you talk about it. <laughs> There's actually been a quite a few celebrities who've been now, talking yeah. about, yeah, now, I mean, gosh, you know, back in the day, no way. Right. Uh, but in the last few years, you know, a lot of those folks have been using their um, platforms to help influence and it's been a slow burn. And now, you know, everybody and their mother seems to be sharing about it, which is great. Mm -hmm. But I think that where some folks are missing is they're wonderful at creating awareness, but then they don't give practical or pragmatic things about how do we change the narrative. Right. And so, you know, awareness is wonderful. And I have this, you know, uh, tra trademark thing on my website that awareness is great, but action is better. It's because it's the truth. Mm -hmm. You can create all the awareness in the world, but if you're not creating action and equipping people to have these conversations, what are we doing? Right. Yeah. I mean, not like not much, I guess, but no, not much, <laughs> but so let's start at the very bottom then for everyday employees let's say um they want to change the culture in their work environment mm -hmm. on the topic of mental health like how do mm -hmm. they start making efficient changes that's a really good question so it's all about buy-in humans are more likely to do things they see other human beings doing well not just mm. doing but doing well so people still respond to positions of authority and influence, you know, even though we're very much in the era of, you know, fight the man. And it's really about finding the people in positions of influence who have visibility within an organization and can actually impact change. So if you're not in that position, that's fine. But because it takes so many voices to be able to facilitate something like this, you can't go out of it your own. So it's about finding those voices from across the business. I'm talking literally across the business. Obviously, it's wonderful to have HR on board or someone from the C-suite, but it has to be across the business because then it shows that people at all levels of the organization actually care about it. And so once you get that, the first statement really needs to be the actual why you give a bleep. Mm. I don't know if I was allowed to say that word. You're good. Yeah. Why do you actually give a shit? Mm -hmm. Not why the market dictates that you should. Why does your company actually give a shit? Right. That you want to talk about this. Because if you are saying what the market tells you to say, 
people can sniff that out pretty quick. Yep. So it's coming up with that authentic statement about why this organization cares about it. And then coming up with a plan of how you're actually going to improve people's skill sets around it. It's not rocket science. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the ways that they can build that skill set? So what it really comes down to, and you know, this is broken up in the book section by section, is understanding where we came from to get to where we are now. So understanding how we have arrived at this narrative and these beliefs and biases and all these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Kind of giving that a bit of a, a recalibration if some of that is a bit out of date. Understanding where your concerns come from, from even talking about it, if that's inside of work, outside of work, that sort of thing. And then really learning the language. You know, it's not like the skill, it's not like matri- the matrix where you're just going to plug the skill set in the back of, your, back of your head overnight. You're not going to be fluent in this overnight. You have to learn the language what to say, what not to say, when's a good time to say it, when's not a good time to say it. I have literal scripts in the book describing all of that. Mm. So we're not training people to be therapists and psychiatrists and doctors at work. We're teaching them how to be decent human beings that can talk about something we should be talking about anyway. And then learning the, uh, the art of triaging, you know, what's something that you can actually help someone with And what are the other things that you're not the best person to help them with? And you should encourage them to get resources to the people that do. Mm -hmm. And it's really, uh, (laughs) so you look like you're, you're uh, pretty in shape from looking at you on zoom, but for any folks uh, like, like me who have been struggling uh, with weightlifting as of late, you know, if you got like the floppy chicken wing, (laughs) you have to, you have to start working on it. And like a floppy muscle gets stronger over time. And this skill set is no different. You're going to be a bit floppy and uncertain at the beginning, but the more you do it, the stronger you get. Right. Practicing a skill set like anything else. Mm. Yeah, that I've yeah I I have friends who like when they're because mental health was never really that big of a discussion with a lot of people I know. Not in a bad mm. way. It's just it was never a thing. Yeah. But uh, they're starting to have those conversations now, and it's just funny hearing like. I know. They're, they're like, I want to help, but I just don't like, I, I'm so new to this. But that's good. Yeah. That's good. Because when you tell people I want to help and I don't know how, one of the best things you can ask somebody is I want to help you. Tell me what's the best way to help you. Hmm. They may not have an answer, but telling people that you want to help, but you don't know what you're doing can be pretty powerful because it shows you're trying, even though you're out of your comfort zone. Right. And keep in mind that this is not a linear conversation. It's not going to go A, B, C, D, E, F, G and be a, a perfect process. And there are some people who may not know what they need or they may not want to talk about it or they may have an issue and they don't want to recognize it or don't know how. You know, you can't control how people react. But what you can control is how you explain yourself to that person of how you want to help them and what you're trying to do you can be very clear with statement of intention and context and you know try to use some intuition and and the right timing but you just can't control how people are going to react all you can try to do is control how you're going to influence that conversation right I, i i can only speak for myself obviously but when i was like really wanting to reach out to someone i almost reacted better to the guys who were like look i i don't know what to say but i i can i'll listen it's a blank as slate. A, as opposed to the people who are like, 
trying to give me advice and it's horrible. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. When people say things like, well, you know, if you're depressed, why don't you go exercise? Oh, it's the most obnoxious thing you could say to someone that's everywhere. Oh my God. And the thing is like, have the studies shown that physical activity helps with depression? Of course it does, but that's not what someone needs to hear in that moment or right. someone who has anxiety. Like, well, why don't you just calm down? Mm. Don't you think they would if they could? That's my favorite. I love being told that. Oh my God. I'm like, but, <laughs> and, and the thing is that people, they, they give advice. They're trying to help, but that's also them being like, I'm uncomfortable and I don't know what to do. So I'm going to give you this solution. So you shut up. Yeah. And honestly, a lot of people, we've all been conditioned that we want to try and fix that fixing equals helping. That is not always the case. Sometimes people just need to be listened to or have their, their, you know, uncomfortable feelings validated. That's really it. They don't need to be greeted with toxic positivity where someone's constantly offering a silver lining. Mm. It's okay to offer hope, but in some moments you just need to feel like shit yep. and have someone say, that's okay. That's a crappy situation. I understand why you feel that way. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I, I, uh, actually this was, I was in high school, so that was a while ago, but I was, I was with my ex at the time and she was going through a lot and I didn't know how to handle that, that conversation. Cause it was never yeah. one of a my, lot of people don't. Right. Yeah. So I, 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 tr I did that toxic positivity stuff like, oh, I could so many people be, do. It could always be worse. And then she would, she like sat me down. And she's like, look, I don't need this crap. She's like, I just want you to tell me that life is shit right now. That's it. And then just listen to me. I'm like, all right. Good for her. She knew how to tell you what she needed. That's yeah, great. I was like, Respect. But yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that toxic positivity, you don't even know you're doing it. We're all conditioned to do it. I'm telling you. I, I, it's so deeply ingrained in our social interactions around the world that it's going to take a long time to undo. And because there are lots of programs floating around that encourage mental toughness or mental resilience, and they're parading around as mental health at work programs, and they're anything but that, mm. all those programs do. And granted, they have value. They do, especially for like professional athletes and, you know, all these folks that need to really have a very specific mindset in certain moments. Right. But outside of those moments, it's okay to be human and show yeah. those emotions. But when you have those sorts of programs that are influencing people, what it's really telling them is any variations of behaviors outside of what we're defining is you failing and mm. not doing this program right and those negative thoughts and emotions are not welcome here right did you ever see the film inside out yes i love that movie it is completely neurologically accurate about mm. the development of the human brain which i love um they had consulting child psychologists and psychiatrists and everything we come pre-programmed out of the box with those uncomfortable emotions for a reason they're telling us and other people we need help or something is going on in our environment that feels bad or feels like a threat. So I don't know who feels that those are unnatural, but I am telling you today that they are <laughs> and they're there for a reason. Right. I, I was, when I was really 
I was such a hothead before I really got the help I needed. Everyone identified I cannot imagine me. you that way. <laughs> a lot of people say that. But everyone identified me as the angry one from inside Aww. out. I was like, come on. <laughs> yeah. But he's a great character. I love Louis Black. Yeah, so I, I took it as a compliment at the time. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but why, why do you think we we've been conditioned that way like what started that can because all these different reactions and emotions and everything like inside out they were there from the beginning as mm -hmm. an evolutionary thing to react to our environment so when did that switch happen from yeah this is a necessity in life to yeah you're crazy well there's a lot of different answers for that to be very honest with you and there are some cultures that are a lot better at acknowledging when things are a bit shit. Mm. Uh, I will use my country of origin as an example. Americans tend to be very positive, can do, let's keep going, push, 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 uh, you know, happy, shiny, other yeah. synonyms. And that narrative has been around for, in my opinion, at least since World War II. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard narrative to break because when you've gone through so many trials and tribulations and things are pretty quote unquote good. And if people get upset about whatever and like, but look how good we have it. Why are you upset? Right. But what it really comes down to is that when people don't know what to say or don't know what to do or don't see the point of someone feeling that way, they just try to usher that person through that emotion as quickly as possible and to move on. And oftentimes people don't have the same perspective on things. And if a conversation feels effortful, in ways that feel quote unquote pointless to the other person, what do you think they're going to try to do? End it. Yeah. And so, for example, when I lived in uh, the UK, uh, what was former, formerly the within the EU, we lived in the UK during Brexit. That was mm. something. Fun. Um, but I distinctly remember that when I would meet folks from the Netherlands or Germany or up in the Nordic countries, they were very good at calling out things when they were just kind of crap. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they had these like in-depth mental health conversations, but they were very comfortable objectively saying when something was bad, they didn't sugarcoat it. And I love that. So uh, it really depends on where you're sitting in the world, to be honest. Right. Canada is yeah. the same as America. Tell it's, me why well, it's it's the exact same like oh we have it pretty good up here like even like and and it's such a fine line too because even like now with the news at our fingertips you see all the like crazy stuff going on in the world and yeah. you go well i live pretty good compared to that but i still have bad days and my days are still yeah. shit sometimes and blah 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 so it, it was hard before to be like hey today's shitty but now with the power of comparison, you're going, wow, I, I live pretty freaking good. So I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't complain. You know, what's interesting is that that's so relative and subjective where people tend to say, you know, they're starving children in Africa. Why, yes. am, I, why am I upset about having cancer? 
or something like that. Mm. I don't really see the, the, I think there is power in perspective. Definitely. And when people joke saying, oh, like hashtag first world problems, there is a difference between complaining about pointless shit. Yes. Yeah. Versus, versus allowing yourself to be reasonably upset about something objectively bad that's happened. Right. And you know, what's interesting. And I'm going to, I'm going to point out something I'm seeing in your office right now. There is a sign to the left of your head that says today will be awesome. That's right. Well, wait. All right, wait. Hold on. Let me, let me, <laughs> it flips to today is canceled. Oh, I need that. That's great. <laughs> so if I, I have that. a bad day, I'll flip it. I need that. I need that. You gotta tell me where you got that. I'm hoping like from Etsy or someone that ships internationally. I, I'll have to ask my family because they got Please. it for me for uh, Christmas. But yeah, I would love something like that. <laughs> um, but I think there's a huge difference between like. Oh my God, the line at the airport to 30 minutes. And the rah, 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 right. Versus I'm being bullied at work and I can't get out of bed. You're really going to compare that to like conflict in the Sudan? Mm. You can't. You're not living that life. You're, it's okay to be upset about things that warrant being upset, but there's a difference between that versus, you know, every, sing, every little single thing seems to upset you. Right. You can't, you can't always compare to the worst situations in the world because then you would literally never be allowed to be upset about anything ever. Mm -hmm. You can't control the fact that you have different lives. You can't, you can try and take action to do what you can from a distance to help those people, but it doesn't invalidate what you're going through. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, that that was something that I struggled with for so long was the fact that uh, I just, I, w I, would, I would be like in a deep, like at the lowest point. And I'd be like, well, I'm not starving. So I guess it's not that bad. And then I would just kind of suppress however I felt. And then that led to more suppression, more suppression, more depression. It was just a slippery slope that I was on. Yeah, how'd that go for you? Not great. No. Yeah. So usually when, uh, you know, when I meet people who are still like naysayers when it comes to counseling or that sort of stuff and they have, you know, whatever's going on for them, I tend to be a bit of a cheeky asshole and I'm like, how's it going for you? Mm. Well, <laughs> and I go, well, maybe you don't knock it till you try it. Yeah. Just saying like it does, it, it may not work for everybody, but there's a reason the profession has been around for this long because everyone needs someone to talk to. That's just what it is to be human. And it's good to talk to someone who's objective, who's not gonna be biased and say things that you wanna hear or may not be helpful to you. So back when I was a therapist, I was very much like a, a, a sweet, tough love sort of mm. therapist and that didn't work for everybody. So, you know, there's lots of folks who do um, the humanistic approach, which is very client directed, no challenging of any kind very much, you know, unconditional positive regard and making that person feel heard. They have their own answers, you know, that sort of thing. Then on the other side of the coin, you have therapists who do uh, rational emotive behavior therapy, which I, I didn't even go this far, but to put it very plainly is like, well, that's really stupid. Is that working well for you? <laughs> oh my gosh. Look up REBT. It is hysterical i remember oh watching a video of the founder uh doing rebt with a, a patient 
I was like, God, he's being a dick to her. Like that, how's that going to help? And then you have something, you know, in between, uh, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is scientifically proven to produce results. Mm-hmm. I love cognitive behavioral therapy. It's observing the, the current belief system, how you arrive there, how it's impacting your behavior, what's not working, highlighting a new set of beliefs and how you're going to get there. Very concrete. And basically, you know, you can mix in existentialism, you know, sense of meaning and purpose. There's lots of different things you can do. Um, but I was, you know, most therapists would identify as a eclectic. So I, I did back then too, but reflecting on it now, I was very, very, you know, CBT focused with like a skosh of existentialism mm-hmm. and the, the patients who came to me were the ones who were really ready to do the work. If you want to sit there and explain and spin your wheels and, and not take any form of action, I wasn't the therapist for you. And that's right. okay because I wasn't going to give you what you needed in that moment. And you needed to see somebody who would. And that's the thing is finding the right therapist is kind of like finding the right relationship. You click or you don't. Yep. And if you don't, it's unethical to keep treating someone. You have to you know, get them to someone who will give them what they need. Man. Yeah. That's a theme that keeps coming up. Uh, well, I keep bringing it up anyway, is the, f- I saw seven therapists before one of them worked and the first six, yeah. I was like, what is wrong with me? Oh my God. I I've even seen therapists that I was like, you should not be licensed. <laughs> yeah. There were oh, a couple in there. <laughs> oh my God. And, and listen, but that's with any profession. There's doctors. You shouldn't be doctors, lawyers. You shouldn't be lawyers. You know, I, I saw, <clears throat> Like even when I was transitioning out of clinical, even though I wanted to, for the reasons I explained, that was a really hard process for me. I was really upset because I was like, what about my patients? You know, I feel really bad. I did all the right things to transition their care and they all understood why I was doing this, but it was, it was really difficult. And I saw a couple of therapists who were just awful. Yeah. And one of them uh, even said to me, you don't even know what it's like to be a therapist for your whole career and how isolating that is. And I was no. like, that sounds like a whole lot of not my problem. That sounds like you need a therapist for a That's second. That's a you problem. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know, oh my God, because I used to be a therapist. So many people will come to me saying, hey, I'm looking for X, you know, what type of therapist should I look for? What are the buzzwords? And I give them all the things. And then some of them will come to me and go, oh my God, you're not going to believe what this one said. And I go, tell me my child. Mm. <laughs> and that's with every profession. So if you see someone that it doesn't feel like the right fit, and there's a difference between someone pushing you beyond your comfort zone and it doesn't feel good versus someone who just is not good at their job. Right. Go see someone else. They're not all bad apples, just some of them. the sad thing with therapy is that people always focus on the bad ones so they'll have a bad experience and they're like i don't want to do this anymore so that's actually really common with our brains in general that we tend to be very drawn to negativity Mm -hmm. and we tend to remember negative experiences much more easily than positive experiences so for example it's something ridiculous like it takes um 10 to 12 positive experiences to negate one negative experience Wow. Seriously, our brains love negativity. Yeah. They remember them very easily. So it's really, it can feel tough to keep going to find the right person. 
and also I just love how people are. And again, it depends where you live. Mm-hmm. It, 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 can, it can even vary within the country you live in, obviously. Like for example, you know, we've now moved back to the US and talking about therapy and medication on one on some of the coastal cities in the north, like you know, Philly or New York or DC or LA or San Francisco people talk about therapy and medication socially or at work, like they're talking about the weather. Mm. But then if you go down to like uh, somewhere in Mississippi or Alabama, you don't know what sort of conversation you're going to get. Or if you go north, 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 way far north where there's more animals than people in Canada. Yeah. Are they going to talk about that? Like they do in Toronto or in Vancouver? No, no way. Exactly. Exactly. So it really depends. I mean, I remember when we were in London, the Brits led the charge about talking about mental health at work, but not socially. It was totally inverse to the United States because we were talking about it socially, but not at work because, Mm. you know, Americans can be very litigious and the U.S. is very worried about liability things. But whereas in the UK, people weren't talking about it socially, but a lot of their laws tend to uh, protect employees more than employers. So there was a bit of that more feeling of, you know, protection and safety. But on top of that, the UK is very collectivistic and community focused in a lot of ways. So they tend to naturally care more about the group as opposed to the individual. So those cultural factors help to usher that conversation along a little more easily at the workplace. And I just thought it was so interesting. It was polar opposite to the United States. I couldn't believe it. And uh, (laughs) my husband, uh, obviously this is very much a joke, uh, but (laughs) because I was, um, you know, really starting to specialize in mental health at work in the UK and I was gaining lots of traction before I moved back. And he would joke with me, he goes, you know, Melissa Doman, the woman who taught the British how to feel. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, no, but very funny. <laughs> um, it just is so dependent on where you are. Right. And also company by company. Mm-hmm. You can't even, there are just so many micro ecosystems that we're talking about. You know, take the 80,000 foot view, you have the world, and then you drill down per continent, then you drill down per country, then you drill down per state or province, then you drill down by city, then you drill down by industry, then you drill down by company, then you drill down by department, then you drill down by manager. Yeah. A lot of variables that can change that conversation. Right. That's so many people. I know. What was it? 6.9 billion? Is that the current world population? Or is it 7.9 billion? I think we're closer to eight. Yeah. Yeah. It's too many of us. And it's going to get to 10 billion, I think, in our end of our lifetime or before then. (laughs) So I don't know if y'all have seen Don't Look Up, but it's it's not a good forecast. I did. I did, yeah. I was like, um, oh, it's a it's a docu-series about what's coming. Great. <laughs> after I read some things online, I feel like Leo when he's on that news thing. Where he's just like screaming. He's like, are you listening? That's... Oh, my God. I was like, he's my inside voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, my, yeah, my inside voice sounds very similar. Oh, God. Now, now one of the one of the biggest on the topic of like the negative negativity bias and focusing on the negatives as opposed to the positives, mm-hmm. the pandemic. Yeah, the, the big elephant in the room in your work. How have you seen the conversation shift in the workplace based on the last two years? Dramatically. 
dramatically. So we were living in London uh, and through uh, what feels like now like a comedy of errors before the pandemic kicked off. Um, my husband's then employer had us slated to move back to the States for a, a promotion he was going to have. And, you know, we still moved back even when we didn't want to. Um, right. But it changed overnight. I became virtual overnight. People contacted me overnight. They're like, we're about to lose our shit. Can you help us navigate through this? And the mental health at work topic was gaining steam. But the pandemic basically just poured kerosene on an already raging fire. Right. It just accelerated the conversation, in my opinion, by three to five years very mm. quickly. So a lot of organizations realized, oh, we need to talk about this like now, now. And there were some organizations who still were kind of avoiding it and like, hey, you know, it's their problem, not ours. We're, we have bigger things to deal with, like shareholder concerns. And it was a lot of really tough factors because there were markets that were crashing. There were people being laid off. There were people who were sick and dying. There were people who couldn't see their families. There's a lot of things going on. Mm -hmm. The companies who saw the writing on the wall said, this is going to be a slow burn and it's going to hurt. We need to talk about this. And so really the conversation came to be, this is pretty bad. We need to talk about it. And we need to talk about what we're experiencing and how we're going to manage it. Yeah. That's what it turned into. And there are still companies who are not taking the bait and they're not taking the signal. And a lot of folks now that, you know, some of the uh, financial markets and job markets have, you know, somewhat settled around the world. And a lot of people are going, oh, you did all the wrong things during all the worst days. I'm out. I'm going to go work for places that are not making the mistakes that you're making. And even before the pandemic, I was always saying, you know, this is a must-have non-negotiable discussion. It's not going away. Now it's definitely not going away. Yeah. And any, any businesses who, when they are transitioning back into the office and this topic falls off, say goodbye to your workforce. They're going to go work in other places because they'll see that as incredibly disingenuous. Right. So the way that I've been saying, like it did at the, you know, earlier in our discussion is that it's not just a wellness thing or DEI thing and all those things. This is a professional development, conversational literacy skill set. It's not going away. And so in the world of work, this is going to be present. People do need to talk about it. We are never uh, short of Oh gosh, I don't want to say what I was about to say, given what's going on, unfortunately, in Russia and the Ukraine. Right. But short of world technology breaking down and us going back to the Stone Age, the stress is getting worse. The access to information is becoming more instantaneous. The pressure is getting higher. Everything is going, in my opinion, from a mental health perspective, not in a great direction. Mm-hmm. So to say that this topic is a fad or temporary literally makes no sense. So why not embrace the fact that we need to talk about this? Society is not going to regress backwards in terms of, you know, 
less pressure, more work-life balance, things being calmer. Let's be really freaking honest. We're not going that way. Mm -hmm. We're not. So why not talk about that and give each other some damn grace to be able to talk about the impact of that short of you moving to Bali or some, or like, um, one of those, uh, what is not a commune, what's the word I'm looking for, like a co-op sort of situation where it's very much intentional living and you don't participate in those things, which I fully, um, support. I think that's wonderful. And I'm, I'm jealous in some ways. Um, that's not the way most of the world lives. So why not be honest about that and give ourselves the tools to manage it? Right. Yeah, man, I, Take a breath. It was it, <laughs> working during the pandemic. Like I, I, I almost had that whole toxic positivity thing is making me hesitate to say it because I'm like, well, I didn't have it that bad, but like it was stressful for a lot of people. Just like not, not just the fact that, well, most, a lot of people got laid off. A lot of people got converted to yeah. virtual, but if you were still working on site, that whole because the media fed you fear and rightfully like, you know, the mm-hmm. pandemic was a real thing. Obviously I'm not saying. Oh anything. yeah. From all sides. Right. But when you get, when you got into work, it was just stressful from the door. Like there, I, I, there was one instance where I, a place that I worked, this was 2021 at some point, mm-hmm. but one of the guys got COVID and I wasn't even on the same shift as him. Like mm-hmm. it, I had no contact with this guy. And I didn't even want to sit in the chair because I was like, I'm going to get it and I'm going to kill my grandma. Like that, that's just, that was like, there's, there's so, there was so, there is so much stress and so much tension everywhere because when someone gets COVID, then all the fingers start pointing. They're like, why would you bring that into the workplace? Like they had any control. Oh, there's tons of that like victim blaming sort of stuff going on. Uh, it, It is a highly politicized issue, highly, yeah, uh, which is very disappointing um, but it's, it's terrifying. You know, I've gone knock on wood this whole time without catching it. I am still deeply terrified and I'm vaccinated and boosted. Hmm. I'm terrified because there's still people who, you know, they're vaccinated, they, they catch it and they still end up in the hospital. It's not likely, but it can happen. Right. And, uh, I, it's kind of like dodging bullets in the matrix. I cannot believe that my husband and I haven't caught it yet because everybody we know has, uh, thankfully, except for my parents, I just, oh my God, I want to protect them. Right. But it's it's a literal threat to your livelihood. Of course, you're going to be afraid because your survival instincts kick in and your amygdala, your amygdala is like saber-toothed tigers in the, in the corner coming to get me. Yeah. Seriously, yeah. It, it's, it's terrifying. And uh, I re- distinctly remember this memory is etched into my brain. When we were, we went from lockdown to lockdown when we moved from the UK to the US and we were in lockdown in London, we packed up our life, couldn't say goodbye to anybody and we had to move back to the States. And at the time, uh, the UK government, you were allowed outside one hour a day, whether that was exercise or going to the grocery store. And I remember my husband and I were walking down the road just to get some exercise, get out of the, the flat and we were walking down on the right side of the road and on the opposite side of the road, we saw someone who was being uh, taken in a stretcher to an ambulance who was coughing up a lung. Mm. And I froze. Mm. I literally couldn't move. 
And my husband physically had to put his hands on my hips and turn me around to make me walk the other direction. Mm-hmm. And then when we were, uh, we had gone to Mexico when it our, was our first time out of the States since we had gotten back from London and we got back home and I wasn't feeling well and he wasn't feeling well. And we both had like a low grade fever and some of the trappings of what we would think COVID was. And listen, I'm a 37 year old woman and I called my parents in tears. Yeah. I was hysterical. I, because I had a very close friend, <clears throat> excuse me, who is vaccinated and still had trouble breathing. Mm-hmm. And I called my parents and I couldn't stop crying. I was so afraid just because I'm trained in psychology and used to be a therapist doesn't mean I, I don't have fears. Right. And like great Jewish parents, because we, we both come from big Jewish families, they sent me a huge box of deli mm. and chicken noodle soup and sandwiches. And I was like, oh, this helps. Thank you. <laughs> and, you know, because everybody was getting tested and Omicron was out of control, we'd wait six days for our results. Six yeah. days. Yeah, same. And it ended up being negative, thank God. But, you know, it was really scary, really mm-hmm. scary. And so, we are constantly being traumatized in different ways. We don't realize how it just registers in our bodies what we're experiencing. And everybody around the globe has been impacted in some way about these sort of, you know, about this whole pandemic, you know, not even just COVID, but oh my gosh, it's it's everything. It's the politicization of vaccines and masks and the um hate crimes towards the Asian community and we're black and brown communities yeah. or global global systemic racism being out of control, uh, things going on. And th- this just happens to coincide with while the pandemic is occurring, what's going on in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these things, it, it sits with you and we got to be able to talk about that. How could we not, especially at work? I was just interviewed by um, Inc. Magazine a few weeks back about how to have constructive mental health at work conversations for those who are feeling impacted by the Ukraine crisis. Right. These are all things that happen to be occurring during the pandemic, but because they're occurring during the pandemic, it feels even worse. Mm-hmm. Gotta be able to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the um, As soon as that war started, I was like, another thing. Okay, just add that, yeah. to, the, add that to the freaking plate. The fact that 2022 started with Betty White dying, I was like, oh, this oh is a bad God. omen. This I is know. a very bad omen. I was like, you already took her? Like, you couldn't have waited a week? Oh, like, my God. She was like four on. weeks away from her 100th birthday. You couldn't have waited devastated. till her birthday? She could have uh, died. Like, oh, she could have the day after. I know. I was like, this is not a good start. <laughs> her last um, her last post was like, I'm so excited to celebrate my 100th birthday. I know. I, like, oh. I know. It was heartbreaking. <laughs> All right, Pete. And, uh. You know, I, uh, I think about when I wrote the book um, and I wrote it in lockdown, mm. from lockdown to lockdown. And I also wrote it while transitioning countries. And that was not easy. It was really upsetting to, to leave our life and not be able to say goodbye to our friends and, you know, being reintegrated back into Trump's America. Mm. And that was also very stressful. And to write that book, while I was going through my own struggles was incredibly difficult, but I'm also in some ways thankful that that was happening because I put it into the book 
And then an entire new section was developed because of it. I was emailing my publisher and I said, we need to incorporate a chapter about how the pandemic is impacting this conversation and chronic stress and, and continued racism. We have to put this in. It's happening right now. Yeah. And they said, yes, absolutely do it. And so then the you know entire third section of the book was born and it was all in real time. I wrote in there, I'm writing this as I'm sitting in lockdown and I'm writing this as I witness being in Washington, D.C., when the insurrection happened, mm-hmm. you know, these are things that are captured in time that need to be included. Right. And I'm so happy I wrote, I mean, the timing of the book is uncanny because we have the data, we have the strategy, we have all these sorts of things, but what people need is a damn playbook. Mm-hmm. How do you actually do it? And how do you do it well? Yeah. And that's why I wrote it the way I did. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like most people know, like, okay, we have to talk about it. But like you said, they're like, okay, now what? <laughs> exactly. The book the book helps you with the now what. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Now, my last question for you, Melissa. Um, if, if there's anyone listening who, I'm, I'm going to break this into two segments. Let, let's start sure. with the employees first. If there's yeah. a an every day-to-day employee out there who with the reintegration back into normal, well, I, I don't want to say careful. Normal. Yeah. yeah I, I say that a lot. Careful. Say the next, say next chapter. Sure. With the reintegration of the next chapter where they're going back yeah. into work as opposed to virtual yeah. or what, whatever it is, whatever that reintegration is, how should they navigate the next few months so that their transition, it's still going to be rough. Of course, It'll be yeah. like hit or miss, but how should they, how can they have the smoothest transition possible? So a few things. I'm happy you caught the word normal because it's so subjective. Mm-hmm. Also, it's reintegration back into the office because they've been working. Right. Yeah. Right. The best thing you could do to level set expectations is to understand that it may not be smooth. It may not be easy. It may feel very up and down. You may notice that your energy levels get zapped a lot faster because you're doing a commute or you're around people more often as opposed to being able to click off of a Zoom. And so the best things you can really do is level set your expectations that you might not know how it's gonna feel. It might be uncomfortable. You might feel a little bit exhausted. You also might feel happy. You might feel elated to be around people. You also might feel concerned about catching COVID. One of the best things you can do is what are your own safety protocols? How do you stick to them? And how do you explain them to other people so they understand it's a you thing, not a them thing? And focus on what you can control and influence and making sure to let others know how you're feeling and where you're at and what you need. Those are the simple basics to do. Mm-hmm. But remember, it's an iterative process. It's going to take time. And it's going to be peaks and valleys. And that's okay. But acceptance of that uncertainty is the key to managing it. So you're not shocked. Right. I love that. And on the other end of that coin, if, if you were to talk to CEOs of companies who may be listening right now, what would you want to tell them about the next few months? And I guess the future from here on out. Talk about your own struggles too. humanize yourself to your workforce, because if you're not talking about it, they're not going to talk about it. Mm. Seriously. 
talk about your own struggles. You can't ask your staff to talk about this without participating in the conversation. And granted, there is a huge difference between people, you know, struggling to return to the office and struggling with re-entry anxiety and all these sorts of things. There's a huge difference between people actually struggling and people crying wolf or right. taking advantage of the fact that they can say, I'm not ready to come back. We can be adults and admit those people exist. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, that's not going to be the case. And you got to give people some grace. They're figuring it out just like you are. Even though it's been a little over two years, it's still early in all of this. This is going to become like the flu. It's never going away. It's always going to be there Mm -hmm. in some way, shape, or form because it got too far away from us to manage. So everyone's still figuring out what life will look like in a long-term COVID world, even though we'll have it more under control someday. But we've never experienced something like this where people keep comparing it to the Spanish flu epidemic, but people treated it differently back then. There was more of a sense of we need to do what's right for the collective so we can get this under control and people stop dying. There was less travel, there was less people, but that's not the world we live in now. So we need to see what are this, what's the sex chapter gonna look like? How are we gonna help each other surf this wave and stop comparing it to other things that are not the same? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. it. I love it. Where can my listeners find you, find the book, find <laughs> everything? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Melissa Doman. Uh, please feel free to add me on there. Uh, reach out if you need a, a swift, sweet kick in the ass for your company about how to have this conversation. Uh, my website is melissadoman.com. My Instagram handle is at the wandering Mel. And my Twitter handle is at Melissa Doman LLC. My book is called Yes, You Can Talk About Mental Health at Work. Here's why and how to do it really well. It's available across all online major retailers and in some brick and mortar stores. Uh, Please read it and please take action. I love it. I'll put those links down below and I can't wait to read it. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've had a lot of fun. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And to all my listeners, I will see you guys next time. Thank you.